a Podcast One production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. So my next guest has just written a book called Always Add Lemon. She's a US-born chef. Her name is Danielle Alvarez. I met her for the first time on MasterChef a number of years ago, but she is the head of the kitchens at Fred's in Sydney, which is one of Sydney's best restaurants. And when you know her background and you eat at Fred's, you understand that her heart, her cooking heart, is based on simple, delicious and beautiful food. She trained at the French Laundry, which is in the Napa Valley, and also Chez Panisse in Berkeley, which is one of the world's great restaurants. You know, there's some people that you chat to that automatically you feel at ease, and she shares some wonderful stories and great insight to her food. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, we can have for proper me. foodie chats. Yes. Because you've got a really interesting background. And I think we, we only met um, on MasterChef, I think. Yeah, I and, think and that's you, right. Yeah, you, you, I think you were a judge for the day on a boat, which was I ridiculous. was with Jock, actually, who, who is now on. Oh, it's so strange that, a, that, isn't it? Yeah, We, have, we yeah. passed the baton. We joked for years that we would pass the baton and we did. <laughs> the better looking judges, that's what oh. it was. Yeah, and normally for kind of guest judges on MasterChef, it's a bit of a baptism of fire because you know you sit there for hours and eventually the contestants get the food and then you've got to kind of be as constructive as you can even though you might want to say hey well this look is i do remember the food being good and i remember there being several problems that day so oh, there was a few um, problems. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was fun you know though. what it's uh, i think at the very beginning on masterchef it was a, professionals would come on and go oh well you know they're just amateurs and then over the years it kind of changed especially when chefs used to lose against amateurs yeah, they're impressive. Yeah, because they're in training a lot of those constantly. Yeah. You know, that's how it yeah. works. And I think, too, you know, it's not their first choice in love, life, but they went and did something else, graphic designer, doctor. Um, but their passion is food. And often that's a different story with a, somebody that starts out as a chef. Often they're doing it yeah. for different reasons. You started out as something else, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Well, I mean, I wasn't in a, a different career for very long, but I went to university and studied art history. You know, God knows why. I think I was just interested and didn't know what else to do. So I got a degree in that with a minor in business administration. And and of course, as you do, I worked for a few years in that industry and realized I wasn't interested. I, you know, I was working for galleries and museums and I found it all a little bit maybe boring to say the least. Um, so I enrolled myself in culinary school and I got a degree there. And I think the, the thing that really took it from just being something I was interested in was actually getting a job, my first job in the industry. And I got an internship at the French Laundry in Napa Valley, California. So slow you down there a second. So you must now reflect on it and go, oh, that's why I did that though. That's why I went to uni. Why, why did you do that? What, uh, how old were you? I, I was in my early 20s, so like I had gotten my college, my bachelor's degree, and I was probably about 22, and I was working in like a fundraising, art fundraising campaign, and I, I was going home and cooking every single night. Mm. I was cooking all weekend long. I loved going to markets, farmer's markets, etc., and just like finding things, finding recipes, and experimenting, and I think that's when it started to click for me was hang on, what I love to do on my time off could actually be my profession. So why am I not doing that? And that is why I got into culinary school now. Was there a moment though that um, you remember turning you off what you'd studied so hard to be and get into? Or was it a gradual process, do you think? Well, I, I mean, to be fair, I d I'm not sure that I really even gave it enough time. But you know that feeling when you're like doing something you know you don't want to do? And you can feel that from the beginning, like my heart wasn't in it. I wasn't waking up excited to go to work. And, and I, thankfully I feel that way now. I, I feel blessed. I don't think everyone wakes up excited to go to work, but it ended up being a good decision. But early days, I, I very much recognized that it wasn't something that made me happy. So culinary school would have been, I reckon, a bit of a shock, no? Yeah. Because it's it normally was. a hodgepodge, I don't know if it's the right word, but it's a hodgepodge of people from all different backgrounds and abilities. The outfits were probably the thing that <laughs> First got day me. In I was uniform. like, what are these pants and these chef's jackets? Did and, you, you feel self-conscious? Yeah, we had to wear the little caps and like a neckerchief kind of thing. and um, Freshly pressed and yep, big yep. shoes. 
exactly. And, you know, the pen tucked into the pocket and all that stuff. So that was new to me, obviously, because I'd never worked in a restaurant. I didn't know what chefs wore. And so, yeah, it was a total baptism of fire. You know, I, I had no idea, but I loved it. I loved learning about all the basics, the, you know, classic French sauces was a class. And, and I just, I adored it. Where did you go? Johnson and Wales in Florida. So that still exists in the U.S., but the Miami campus is no longer there. Yeah. So your your background is Cuban, right? Cuban. Yeah. And it's both mom and dad. Both mom and dad. They were born in different parts of the island and left Cuba um, during the revolution. So like late 1950s, early 1960s, and they ended up in Miami, like so many Cubans of the day did. They met in school and got together. Had Three kids. We all oh, look at you smile when you say yeah. that. <laughs> oh well, so many good memories, and I miss them terribly. I haven't been able to see them obviously yeah. for a while. So um, yeah, we lived in the same house always growing up, and my mom was a phenomenal cook. She just made the most heartwarming food, and she cooked mostly Cuban as kids. Uh, I think she started to kind of experiment a little bit more with the advent of food TV. But when we were kids, it was Cuban like rice and beans and some kind of stewed meat almost every night for dinner. Because food would have been, I mean, you read so many stories about Cuba and the difficulty of sourcing fresh produce. People weren't very well off at all. I mean, obviously a communist um, regime. So the food and cooking, I'm sure, changed and became very much an exercise in thrift yes. and economy, well, right? I think when you're coming as an immigrant to a country that you don't know and with nothing, the economy really came in for them when they got to Miami. I think they, at the time, they were doing quite well in Cuba and they had a very rich family history of cooking. My grandmother on my mom's side was one of five sisters. And I just, I hear the stories of it and it just sounds so magical. They all lived in, in the country and houses nearby each other. My grandmother was like the one that everyone learned how to cook from and she was the youngest. So it's a bit ironic. And um, yeah, I, I think they tried to bring as much of, of that history, culinary history with them to the US, but it was tough. What, what was your favorite story? Well, I, I remember my grandmother telling stories about life on the farm. And, and you know, it's so interesting now that I, I work a lot with farms and that's not a life I would have ever been exposed to had I stayed in Miami doing something else. But she said that, you know, they were very thrifty. They were very conscious of not wasting anything. And they, you know, if they, um, let's say, slaughtered a pig, you know, they were making sausages that afternoon they were cutting other pieces of meat and, and hanging it to dry for several days. And she even told me that from one of the pigs, they made um, like a suitcase out of the, the, out of the, the skin. skin. Out of the hide. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> of a pig. I'd never heard that before. But um, so, so lots of stories like that about how yeah. they cooked and what they used um, different things for and yeah, things like that. You, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? You're either a chef that is driven by source to play. And most of us say, oh yeah, we are. But there's a real difference, I think, when you get deep into it, mm. the reality of using everything. I mean, people go, yeah, I, I do nose to tail, but whether they actually do, when you see stuff that comes off, you know, a farm like that and how they use anything in the story of the suitcase, that's like... Oh, it's very difficult, I think, to execute that in a restaurant. Like, you know, I, I would love to to be more that way, but when you're in a situation like we are in Sydney in a city restaurant, you're having to produce day in, day out. People uh, come to you numbers. for consistency. Mm. You know, you can't be just changing things, everything all the time. So I think a, like a small little country restaurant where you were changing things up based on just what you had would be really interesting. Yeah. I remember years ago trying to, you know, switch just purely because, you know, my mindset had changed, but in the restaurant buying Chianina, which is, you know, the Italian... Um, Very cattle. big cattle, yeah. And of course, there just wasn't a market. And so she said, I have to sell you the whole beast. And um, and the practicality, sorry, the difficulty mm. in practical terms of trying to use the whole beast, and I mean everything, in a busy restaurant that back then we were doing, you know, 180 covers, I think, on a busy service. Yeah. And, you know. Nearly impossible. Yeah, you have to change it mid-service it. and it's yeah. like, yeah. It's and, uh, that's not available and now it's this and it's this cut and it's not that cut. And then you got so many more brazing and slow cut, you know, exactly. slow cook cuts. Exactly. Then you do anything that's kind of quick and easy to cook. Yeah, yeah. So, and also I think, you know, too, there's always this difficulty of getting hold of, um, let alone selling them, getting hold of, 
you know, things like sweetbreads and, you know, brains oh, and I know. all of this. Well, a know? lot of, you know, if you get one beast, there's one per animal. So what are you going to do with that? You know, it's, I mean, it's, Give it to someone special. It's all, yeah. all these logistics, I think, that are, are fascinating to me that, that actually end up consuming a lot of our thought in the restaurant. Because when you're trying to do things ethically, you're basically competing against a system that's not geared towards doing it that way. And you're having to change all the steps along the way. It's very interesting, but it's very hard. Yeah, there's, well, I think, you know, there's a reality. There's a lot of guilt that we have about, you know, trying to do the right thing. But in the end, it's nature. I mean, I read Matthew Evans' book, mm -hmm. um, I think it was last year, about being a smallholder and a farmer. And there was one section where he talked about the kind of goriness of kind of running a farm, you know, the reality. Oh, you know, yeah. there's dead things in the morning, you know, there's a possum head and a, you know, and a baby sheep. and Little a Little lamb you know, that get picked off and things. It's like Hundreds of yeah, birds. Yeah. And he said, even in the name of vegetarianism, you know, when you've got a field of strawberries, if they're not baiting, poisoning, spraying, it just, it's just eaten by everything else. So what do you remember about your, your mum's kitchen? Let's dig a little deeper. You know, have you got an experience or? It's funny. I, I, when I think about being a kid in my mom's kitchen, I literally look at things from that shorter perspective. <laughs> you know, I was always at her side. I was probably like at her hip, you know, and we're not tall people. I, I'm pretty short myself. Um, but I was probably standing head at her, at her hip height and I can just see over the stove. And, and I remember, you know, everything starts in Cuban cooking with a saute of onions, sweet pepper and tomato. So that smell and garlic, sorry, uh, that smell of those things sauteing just brings me right back to her side. So she used to do a dish that I is probably still my favorite Cuban dish. It's called ropa vieja, which means old clothes, <laughs> not very appetizing, but it's beef that's boiled. And she cooked everything in a pressure cooker. So it was done in an hour. Mm. And then shredded. And then that was mixed in with that sofrito mixture with a bit of tomato and wine and the kind of secret Cuban spice mix that I now know has MSG in it, which is probably why everything tasted good. I think once I was old enough to hold a knife, I was the one chopping the onions and the peppers and the garlic and all that. And she loved it. She had an assistant and I loved it because I just loved every step of the process, the chopping, the, the cooking, the smells of everything. And then finally getting to put it on the table. And the the love that my mom somehow got into her food was magical. Like, I probably think that more than anything is what made me want to cook for a living. Because when you can make people happy through the food that you make, I just think there's no better feeling. Mm. And what was your dad's role in all this? I mean, you talk, even in he your was book, a consumer. there's a lovely, there's a, I was going to say, because even in the book, right at the beginning, it says, you know, for mom, thank you for being the woman you are. Yep. So, and where's dad? No, dad, um, <laughs> dad loved dad. He loves everything my mom cooks. God bless him. And um, Is it a bit like The Castle? Have you ever seen the classic Australian no, film, I The Castle? See, yeah, where and he's like, And there's a little like, snippet where he loves everything. Can you believe, yeah, what she made? <laughs> and it's like grilled sausages. What do you sausages. call this, love? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Rissoles. Rissoles. Beautiful. Yeah. Kids, how lucky are you? They're the best. Yeah. They're the best. So he was like that, was so he? So he was like that, which I really appreciate. I mean, I, I think he really celebrated that she had this skill and that she was really good at it. So tell us about going to work because you, um, French Laundry. Yep. And then uh, Chez Panisse, which is, we went, when we went to California last, I ate there twice because it was too good to oh, not go so back, good. right? But they're chalk and cheese kind of places, I think, right? Very different. Yeah, so I think that was, that was interesting for me. So I went to the, well, I, I wrote a letter to the French Laundry, obviously, no experience, just in school. And I wrote a very heartfelt letter about how I really wanted to experience, you know, that cooking and, you know, start essentially at the mm. top. And they they took me on for a three-month internship over the summer. This would have been like early 2000s. Moved to California, told my family I'd be back in three months. <laughs> but in my mind, I was kind of like, I'm gone. guys, I'm going. <laughs> yeah. But I remember walking in on day one and the first thing someone said to me was, don't ever come early again. I was like, oh. God, yeah, you know, why? And um, he was like, well, you know, because when you come early, everybody else comes everything early. Everything in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, everyone has a schedule of everything they need to do at a very specific time. And if you come early, you disrupt that whole system. And that was my first kind of moment of like, oh God, you know, not in Kansas anymore. Got to really <laughs> like pay attention. Um, but it was great. I, I, I learned so many things. I, I did very repetitive menial yeah. tasks. I don't think I learned a lot about cooking, but 
I learned a lot about discipline. To be able to watch a high-performing team in action and the, the amount, witness the amount of hard work that those people put into their jobs was really inspiring. Inspiring didn't, obviously didn't put you off. No, it didn't put me off at all. I mean, I, the thing is, you know, we would all work hard and especially the chefs that were being paid to work there. But then we'd all like hang out as friends at the end of the night. Like I just thought the whole life was so fun and exciting and we'd go out to different restaurants on our days off and, you know, it was a great, great culture. And the other part of that that was really eye-opening was they had a garden across the street where they would harvest a lot of what they used on the menu. And part of the internship was spending a bit of time working in the garden. So I got to experience that firsthand. Um, we also went to several other farms that they use in the restaurant. So I got to see that connection of where food comes from, how it gets to the plate, and also noticing the difference on how something that's farmed with a lot of care tastes as opposed to something that's produced for for volume, for numbers that I was tasting in the grocery store. So it really opened my eyes to all of that. Best and worst experience at, at that in, with that internship? The uh, best experience was sitting down to eat. Every intern, you know, they don't tell you this because it's not like anything written down, but every intern is given dinner at the end of their experience and they sit you inside the chef's box which is essentially like this little glass office that's in the middle of the restaurant and I know they redesigned it so I'm not sure if it's still there but um, it's where the chef's office is and it's um, looks directly out onto the kitchen so when an intern is going to have dinner in there they they clear everything out they set it up like a dining table and then they do the full service for you like they do for everyone else which is you know, phenomenal when you're an intern, a lowly intern, and I've never had a dining experience like that. It really blew me away. Worst experience. Hang on, was, hang on. Just borrow uh, yeah. into, just borrow into, because that just excites me. I just go. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, so I, you're and, dissecting everything, and you're course by course. And they give you all these courses that you've never seen before, and it's like, hang on, I've been working here for three months. I've never seen this dish before. How could that have happened? And they're just so sneaky and crafty and they do all these things to surprise and delight, which I think is really a, a hallmark of the Thomas Keller restaurants. And it's something I think they do exceptionally well. So I got to taste all these dishes that I've heard about, that I read about in the book, like the oysters and pearls, which is a, like a tapioca custard with poached oysters and caviar and the little salmon cornet, you know, with a little twill kind of cone and a salmon tartare on top. And another one actually was a dish that I was working on almost my entire time. So you've probably seen this one, Gary, with the egg that they, you know, peel out the inside membrane yeah. and they fill it with the custard and yeah. the black truffle veal jus. So my job for oh, three God, months you know the was, stood on the back of my <laughs> was peeling those <laughs> eggshells. I think I had to peel hundreds and thousands of them just to be able to get the, you know, 15 perfect ones for every dinner service. That is the purpose of the intern. Although every, if there's any hospitality union people listening, um, there's a disclaimer at the head <laughs> yeah. of the, uh, uh, of, of this show. The because, hours I worked were limited. They were. Oh, there you go. Well, no, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't exist here, right? So, you know, it's no, not but something. It's, it doesn't there anymore either. I think I was one of the last group of people that were, you know, the unpaid of this, interns. The, yeah. Well, you're very lucky, I yeah. think, anyway. Well, and I was lucky to be even able to do that. I worked and saved for a year and I was still living with my parents. I was thankfully mm. able to do that um, just to be able to pay myself my rent for three months while I was there. So go on then, the bad thing? Did, I, did we do a bad thing? Well, you I don't kinda, have to do a bad thing. I kinda, no, 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 I'll tell you. Um, but I don't want to make it sound bad because it was actually a really like, it was a moment where things kind of clicked for me. But I, this just gives you an example of the standards, let's say. I was in the restaurant working and someone in the garden actually had called in sick and they needed an extra hand there. So they asked me to to go across the street to um, to go help in the garden. And so I went and changed, went into the garden, was picking radishes or something like that. And one of the chefs comes out and says, can you come back into the kitchen, please? You know, chef wants to see you. I was like, oh, oh God. Okay, what have I done? And I walked into the kitchen and he said, okay, come with me. And he took the entire kitchen team, plus myself, to the staff change room to note that I had put my dirty chef's jacket into an unlined bin. The point of that 
public humiliation was to emphasize that, you know, even the littlest thing like throwing your jacket into an unlined bin is disrespectful. And it just goes to show the the very, very high standards and discipline that exists in restaurants like and that. And I think people would be listening to that and going, that's crazy because you just say, could you not do it? But he's into, I kind of feel that when people are no, it's good. that I mean, good and that yeah. creative and at the top of their career, I don't see why. You, you have a choice whether you work there or whether you don't. And I totally. think, you know, if you want to be exceptional and you want to work for an exceptional yeah. place, then... Yeah. And it's exhausting to be that way. I think, you know, like in my in my future, you know, fast forward to leading mm. a kitchen now, it's not the kind of culture or restaurant that I want to create and foster, but I still really appreciate the lessons. And sometimes I wish I was a bit but more that way. Mm. Yeah. But you can't ever start something and not be that way and then go back and change it. You have to be that way from the beginning. Otherwise, it's just too hard to go backwards. So they, they drill those lessons into every chef and every floor member, you know, everyone that works there sure. from the beginning. And you walk around the grounds and the kitchen and everything. You've never seen a more pristine, clean space in your life. Mind you, in saying that, and I'm, this is going to be the, I don't know which one was the chalk or the cheese, but the two, you know, the French Laundry and then to Chez Panisse with Alice Waters. I remember going, I think I was with George and they showed us around the whole place. I remember going around the back of the restaurant, which is, you know, quite small. It's like a little alleyway and whatever. And everything was like immaculate. Like there's no back of house. It just didn't, do you know what I mean? Like, No, and, and we would store tomatoes in the summertime outdoors in like a chicken coop looking thing because you know, it was better that way. You'd never refrigerated tomatoes at Chez Panisse. And, and I guess we'll get more into that now. But that was one of the things that really changed my mind from, you know, cooking being something that's really like, it's task oriented, it's very militaristic, it's, you know, very disciplined to something that's being a little bit more romantic and about pleasure and about cooking beautiful food and tasting it and enjoying it. Um, and that's probably why I leaned more towards the kind of cooking yeah. and shape. And that restaurant is legendary. I mean, I, I remember a restaurant Australia, which I was very lucky to be invited to in Tasmania a number of years ago. And Alice Walters and uh, Stephanie Alexander was sitting. So when I sat down, they were sitting opposite. I was like a kid, you know, not like a, like a 53-year-old man. What am I getting, you know, all excited about? <laughs> but it was, just, it was just one of those moments where I'm looking at kind of a combined experience between these two well, women legendary. beyond yeah. any kind of my thinking, you know, it's wonderful. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So, um, it's actually interesting cause I was, um, funnily enough, one of those life moments, I was interviewing Alice Waters yesterday over, you know, over a zoom meeting or something for, for someone else's website. And, um, I just remember stopping and thinking like, holy I am interviewing Alice Waters and she's talking to me and we're talking about memories and it's just really funny. Um, so at that time, I, again, Chez Panisse, still legendary. They're coming up on their 49th anniversary now. Amazing, amazing that any restaurant is around for that long. Again, I wrote a letter and I asked if there were any positions available and the restaurant, you know, I'm sure a lot of people listening won't know this, but the people that have worked in the restaurant worked there for like 10, 15, some even 20 years and some even more. Um, it's one of those institutions where people come and they don't leave because it's a really great job. And, you know, the people are so just the best in the world. But luckily, one of the chefs was having a baby and taking some time away. And it just happened to be perfect timing for me to, you know, get my little foot in the door. And I didn't really think I was ready. I didn't think that I had enough time working or enough skills. And and I probably didn't, to be fair, because that restaurant is full of real pros. And they change the menu every single day, top to bottom. And you have to really come in knowing knowing a lot because all all you get you don't get any recipes we sit in that around that little back area that you would have seen there's a little picnic table and under a beautiful wisteria tree just gorgeous and we'd go through the menu every day with the head chef and we'd break up who would do the first course who's going to cook the second the you know the grill etc and you had to know what the chef wanted and be able to just create it because there was no instruction beyond that so that was really interesting. I think that taught me a lot about using my senses to cook as opposed to following recipes to achieve an end. 
This was, how am I going to get from A to B? And I have to figure it out yeah. every step of the way. But my, my experience, it's funny, you know, coming from London and working in Michelin star restaurants and coming to Australia, I was always that process driven, you know, blah, blah, everything had to be fancy and 20 things and the rest of it. I remember many years ago, a good friend of mine, an American guy, gave me her cookbook, right? This would have been 25 years ago or so. And um, no pictures, just a recipe book. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't, you know what, I just stuck it on a shelf. I just went, yeah, whatever, Chez Panisse, you know, it's all too homely kind of thing. And I remember when I went to Chez Panisse the first time, I was kind of reluctant and somebody said, you've got to go because you just, Mm. it's your kind of food, you'll love it. And absolutely it was. It was Maybe it was just that point in my career where I just went, that's all too fussy. I need to do stuff that just tastes really good, you know? I think, but I see a lot of chefs going through that evolution, you know, where you start off when you're young and you just want to like show people what you can do. And then I think kind of fast forwarding, you you get to a place, and, and I don't know, you tell me if this was your feeling about it, but you just get to a place where it's like, I just want to make food that tastes really good, that people enjoy. And and it is probably more work in the sourcing of the ingredient, but it's less, you know, faffing around in the kitchen. Like it's essentially taking something really beautiful and perfect and not doing a lot to it. And the skill in that is tremendous. Like to know when something is enough and it doesn't need any more is really hard. Like I still find myself doing that thing like... um you know, I think it's it's a fashion quote, but like Coco Chanel said it, like, you know, look in the mirror, take two things off, and then you're ready to go. And that's kind of how I look at food now is we have this tendency to want to like hide things or, oh God, this isn't, this sliced tomato salad is not enough. I have to put all yeah. these little things on it. And it's Better actually get not. On. Yeah, yeah, just just leave it alone. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that's, her, that's her cooking in a nutshell, right? So... I th- I'm trying to remember what we ate, but I know asparagus was in season. So we had yeah. white asparagus one visit and green asparagus another visit. And, <laughs> you know, I think we had halibut with, um, you know, a beurre blanc. And, you know, I just, I can't even tell you the last time I made a beurre blanc. So it was just, I and Jesus, it's so good. I go, beurre yeah. blancs are good, you <laughs> yeah. know? There's a reason they're a classic, right? Yeah, and you forget that yeah. because we we do too much, but it could be as simple as That's that. beautiful. So can we jump yeah. a bit and, you know, so now we've established that, you know, you worked in some incredible places with some incredible yeah. people. Why did you come to Australia? I came to Australia first just for a holiday when I was I was ready to leave California. I had resigned from Chez Panisse. I didn't know what I wanted to do and I just came here, spent a couple of weeks. But why here? Like around. who told you about it? Where did you, why was it in your head? I had some friends who lived here and I thought, okay, I'd love to go somewhere. I was traveling by myself, so I wanted to go somewhere that I knew someone. And it seemed like a long way one away. Of those, <laughs> yeah, I will say it did seem like a long way away, but that was part of the appeal is getting somewhere really far away and just, you know, disconnecting for a couple of weeks. And was there a trigger by any chance? Uh, um, not in particular. You didn't have some I bit think... to break up with a partner or you were... I, well, I probably did, but I'm. Uh, we're not going to talk about that one. Why not? <laughs> why not? Because it's actually interesting why people make the moves they do. Well, you know, it's interesting that that you can make something so significant in your mind. I think, and then make all these subsequent decisions because of it, and then realize ten, twenty years later how that all those little decisions change your life, but actually the reason that you made them no longer exists. So person no longer exists. Um, Anyways. And that's all we're getting. Yeah, that's all you're getting. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. But um, (laughs) so so anyways. I respect that. I came to Sydney and um, I really enjoyed it. And I got to eat a lot of great restaurants. I remember them setting me up to do like a two-day stage with Kylie Kwong. And I loved being in her little kitchen. This was when um, she had Billy Kwong on Crown Street. Great I restaurant. think it was. Yeah. I mean, one of the little best. Little stools. And- yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, her new one was great, right? But I miss her cooking and her yeah. food so much. I used to like when you walk past during the day, the front of house staff or the kitchen staff were out the front, either like prepping and whatever. And then yeah. they shove it all back in the kitchen at service time. Yeah. Well, I got to see <clears> a lot of that because she, they do the prep for the carriage work markets mm. out in the front, like on the mm. dining tables, you yeah. know, there's a guy making dumplings and stuff. It. Yeah. So that was super cool. And I just, I left those two weeks feeling like 
I really want to get back here. I don't know what it is that's that's drawing me back, but I really loved what I saw. And as it happens, actually, I sent an email to a friend of mine who's an Australian guy right as I was getting on the plane in Sydney airport to come back home. And I said, um, hey, you know, if you ever hear of any good job opportunities, let me know. I might be interested. By the time I landed in, I would have landed in LA, I think it was, I had a response for him saying, I actually think I have the perfect thing for you. And and I replied, you know, tell me, what is it? What is it? But I didn't get his email back before I got on the plane to Miami, which is another five <laughs> hours. When I landed in Miami, I was like desperate to open up my email. And it was an opportunity with the Maryvale Group, which I now work for and, you know, t- ended up taking the job with back then. Um, they wanted to open a restaurant that was like Chez Panisse. They had a site in Paddington and they they needed a chef. And, you know, I think this was a point I hear I heard this story not that long ago, actually, but Justin had challenged our food and beverage director to really start looking outside of the box, like look anywhere, find a chef from anywhere and get them to come over. We want to start, you know, raising the game a little bit. So he contacted my friend David, David contacted me and, and maybe like a week after getting home, I was on the phone with my now boss talking about, you know, just having conversation, trying to get to know each other to see if this was really going to work. Had a few of those and then decided that they would bring me out and I would cook for them and we'd see how things went. And so I think after that original trip, two months later, I was back and I was cooking for, for Justin and Frank Roberts and, and all the people at Maryville and uh, we decided to go for it. That would have been nerve-wracking. Yeah, it was. But I also, it was really nerve-wracking, but I also look at it now as like, I had the feeling of what have I got to lose? If I got here and it was a disaster or they didn't like it, you know, I got another trip to Australia out of it. So <laughs> I can go back home and, you know, no one will be the wiser. Um, so I didn't really feel that stressed about the pressure of succeeding at that point. What what dish were you most proud of that well, you put up for them? You know, I made b- very simple fare, like obviously you would expect. It, it's still the food that I cook now, but I went to Carriage Works Saturday Market and I bought a few different things. And I remember um, one of my favorite dishes that I cooked that day was uh, like a poached, olive oil poached albacore. And I I like to keep albacore especially very nice and rare throughout the center. And I served that with a fresh tomato salad and some aioli. And, you know, that's still something I would put on the menu at Fred's today, which is cool for me to look back on that menu and think I haven't changed that much. Although I have evolved. Yeah. Start. I mean, I've eaten at Fred's a couple of times. Because the food is exceptional. Thanks very much. I'm very proud of where we are, where we've been open four years now. So I, I obviously moved to Sydney. <laughs> yeah. And um, it took about two years to get the restaurant open um, and operational. So in that time, I was keeping busy meeting farmers and working at the different Maryvale venues, just, you know, staying occupied. Um, but then we opened uh, four years ago. And it's it's been, I would say you know, I, I think very successful. We're, we're busy almost every night, yeah. every lunch. Um, and this year, best restaurant in Gourmet Traveler, wasn't it? Best new restaurant, wasn't oh, it? Oh, no, 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 not this year. But when we opened, yes. Correct. Yeah. Sorry, yes. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. When we opened, we were Gourmet Traveler, best new restaurant. We were nominated for so many other things. And it was just so exciting that time. Like I remember um, feeling you know, that feeling of total exhaustion, but also complete exhilaration. You know, I was think I was sleeping four hours a night, going to bed late from doing service, waking up early, doing it all over again, going to like an awards thing on the weekend, getting all dressed up and just like being surrounded by all these people of the industry that I knew about. But now I'm in the same room as them. And oh my God, they're calling my name out on the thing. It's just really, it was surreal. It was surreal. Phone call to mum. Oh, God, yeah. Well, we talk all the time. We're quite <laughs> close. But they're, they're super proud. And they ended up coming out to to Sydney. Maybe it, it was a year after we opened. My sister, her husband and the kids, everyone. And they just couldn't believe the restaurant. You know, and I think a lot of people walk into Fred's and think, wow, this place is just so, it's so different, I think. You know, the fact how the kitchen is laid out. And again, for people listening that have never been there, 
the kitchen is essentially the dining room. And, and it's hard for me to explain just how much of a blurred line there is between the spaces, other than to say a lot of times guests walk into the kitchen and are standing right in front of the fire before they look around and realize like, oh my God, I'm in the kitchen. Yeah, which is maybe a little bit dangerous. <laughs> it's, Do you ever feel when you've got all those customers behind you and the pressure's on that you wish you had, could close the door? Almost every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll never design a space like that ever again if I get the opportunity. I think a lot of people are like, oh my God, what is she thinking? But that's the joy of like the naive mind when when you don't know what it's going to feel like. And I, I think now looking back on it, I realize how exhausting that is mm. to be constantly open and on, on all show. the time. Yeah. And also there's no line between people and me. So I get really focused on what's happening in the kitchen. And then I have someone coming up to me and very sweet and, and nice. I, I want to talk to more people, but I can't be the very generous, open person that I normally am if I'm not in the kitchen. Because in the kitchen, I have to be super focused and head down and I have a million things that I'm watching for. So that kind of challenge has been has been not one that I think I've mastered. Can you describe that for people listening? Because if you're not a chef, you don't get it, right? So, you know, can you... Can what, you the feeling? Of, yeah, burrow into yeah. it. You know, you tell us what's going on. Give it like just in a minute, you know, you're trying to track orders and da-da-da. Like, what's that stress look like? As the head of the kitchen, you know, I think you can put yourself into different situations, but I work best when I'm running the pass, which essentially means that I see all the dockets come in. I do a lot of calling out of the dockets. So I'm asking for one chef for to bring up this dish. I'm asking another chef to bring up this dish and also coordinating the timings of all of that to ensure that things hit that pass at the very same moment so that they can go out to the table hot and beautiful and perfect at the same time. And I'm not sure that people understand how much choreography goes into that one minute moment of coordinating three different main courses from three different sections all coming up at the very same time and then also finishing a lot of those plates. So usually I'm the last one to see everything. So it's kind of like me giving it my sign of approval and, you know, polishing the edge of the plate and putting on the last little bit of, you know, olive oil or lemon juice or something like that. So I'm I'm not just looking at what's in front of me. I'm also looking at what's coming next and what's coming next after that. So I have lots of different timings in my head. I'm two minutes on this one. I'm six minutes on that one. I know I'm more than 10 minutes on that one. So we got to hurry up. And, and there's all that kind of stuff happening all in the very same moment. And if you take me out of that, I lose my sense of timing and everything goes down. <laughs> and you're waiting for your food a little bit longer than you should. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. When you train a young chef on the pass and you're trying to explain that essentially you've got every dish going on in your head, you're cooking it. Well, I do. I don't know about you, but you kind of cook. You're cooking no, it in your head. That's so, you know, you, right. you don't need yeah. to look at the guy cooking the fish or the girl cooking the fish. You can almost say two minutes later, flip it or, you know, take it off, yeah. get it off, oh, get yeah. it off, you know, or whatever, check the lamb, you know, or put that on the plate, yeah. shake the vinaigrette. Well, and it's wild too, because I think I've de I've developed this ability to like, know when something's seasoned mm. enough or not just by looking at it, which is really bizarre, but I'm I'm usually not wrong about it. And I think it's because I get to know the chefs and I see how they season. I, I know the the chef that's always gonna undercook it a little bit. And so I'm I'm on trying to be on top of all of those things. I used but, to have this I used to I get fixated by chefs that love shaking pans or have movements that are unnecessary. Yeah, they have their ticks. Yeah, stop no, no, it. no, I know. Doing? And I, I think this is the side of restaurants and and our little quirky kitchen culture that a lot of people don't get exposed to but you really are like this 
this little family. You know, I know some of my chef's habits better than I know my friends or my partner even because we're together in this hot hot little space for, you know, several hours a day. Last time I I was in an all-girl brigade, was that? Deliberate? Well, it's not. It's never been all girls, but we ha- we do have nights where it is all all women on the sections, which is very cool. And I've I've come to um, not really notice it anymore. Like I used to be, like, oh wow, it's 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 all ladies tonight. And now I'm kind of like, oh yeah, well that's that's who we are. That's how it should be. Uh, but we work with great men too, so I don't want to take that away from them. They're they're excellent. They were just different beasts in the kitchen. I always think. <laughs> yeah. In our businesses, all the all the top positions were girls. And Not I deliberate. It, it was it just ran very smoothly. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think you know, too, you know, because conditions have changed so much, and as employers, we have to be so much more flexible. And I remember a couple of um, my best staff as they left and had babies that you know I was just begging them to come back. You know, just come back on the weekend. You know, when your partners are home, and just do a double shift. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, just do one cheeky <laughs> double. <laughs> uh, but I think that's that's how you have to be these days. I think there's so many women that have so much talent and so much to give. And if you don't create scenarios where they can work with with their lives at home, if they do have kids, then then you lose them forever. So it's better to have, you know, very talented women in your business, even if it is just one and two days a week, as opposed to not at all. I always, and I've said it before on the podcast, but I always think that women, both front and back of house, are natural hospitalitarians. You know, men are very mm. process-driven and, you know, like a sommelier, it's all about things. You know, men are about things. Yes. And women are much more emotive. So, I, you know, in my own business, I've always said, you know, hey, it's it's the hungry, thirsty quotient. You know, the, if they don't have water on the table, it's not because you need to upsell a bottle of water, which a man tends to go, hey, I upsold this wine into that wine or whatever. I don't care. You know, were they happy they're going to come back again? Because that's the biggest upsell you can ever do. Whereas most women just go hungry, thirsty. Oh, there's, they don't have any water. They must be thirsty. I'll go and top their waters right. up. It's not an opportunity to you, sell. It's like an opportunity to, look to after make someone, someone happier. Yeah, and it's I think exactly. that's very yeah. natural for women. And for some men, that's very difficult. That's a good point. I, I, like a lot of people end up asking me, you know, can you tell the difference between food cooked by men and cooked by women? And the truth is, I don't think you can. But I do notice lately I gravitate more towards the food cooked by the women that I greatly admire, which is probably why I wanted to work at Chez Panisse so badly as a younger chef. And I, I'm not sure what that is. But anyways, that's what I do now. Uh, tell us about tell us about the book. Yeah. So the book is my first book, hopefully not my last. It's called <laughs> Always It's a lot of hard at, work, isn't it? Oh, my God. Yeah. It took about three years from like the first conversation to getting it out. So I have lots more respect for all those uh, authors out there, you included, Gary. And um, it's called Always Add Lemon, which is my motto. You heard me say earlier yeah. that I'm always at the past squeezing lemon over everything. I, it's one of those things I can't help it. I think it makes everything taste better. It's not about adding more salt to things. Sometimes it's just about that little burst of freshness. Um, so not every recipe does have lemon in it, but it's a lot of stories about my younger, early cooking days, even stories of me being a kid at home, watching my mom cook. Um, and then a lot of the lessons I learned uh, through the years. So as a young chef, I looked at cookbooks for knowledge. I, I read them like they were novels. I had stacks of cookbooks next to my bedside and I collected them and I just adore how much you can get out of a cookbook. And I think I wrote this for my younger self who really wanted to be inspired. There were so many ingredients that I n- didn't know how to use that I now know a bit more about. Um, and And then I also... I fully acknowledge that there's a lot that I still don't know. So this is a picture of where I'm at now. And these are the recipes that I love most throughout the past 10 or so years. I find it's a nice way of focusing your mind on something like a recipe that maybe you've just used touch and feel over the years to make. And now you've got to translate it into a, you know, like you said in Chez Panisse, you didn't have a recipe. Now you've got to take that. And you've got to make it as bulletproof as you can. It's quite interesting. Yeah, it is. Exactly. Like I never was a recipe person. And even when we opened Fred's, I realized how bad that was because I could not explain certain things to people. I just kind of thought 
people would walk in like I walked into Chez Panisse and just be able to yeah. do it. I'd be and able to tell them. Not. Yeah, I'd be able to tell mm. them how to like roast a whole leg of lamb. And then I realized very <laughs> quickly that that was not the case. I really needed some very key, you know, bullet points, even if it wasn't like full thought out recipes, but I needed a lot of that information written down. So that was a good start. And then when I got offered to do the book, it was really like sitting down, focused, testing things multiple times, which I'd never done before. But that was very, very cool that I had the opportunity to do that. Yeah. I spent most of my career going, oh, you don't need recipes and blah, blah, blah. And I still refer, I've got these ridiculous notebooks going back 20 or more, 30 years nearly now. Actually, it's more than 30 years. Gee, I'm getting old. But they're covered in the things that are in that recipe. Yeah. You know, like, and they're, <laughs> yeah. they're stupid. You know, like there'll be a creme pat recipe and quite obviously there's, creme pat there's in flour the pages. and egg. <laughs> yeah. You know, but I look at it and I just go, why didn't I ever catalogue these I know. properly? And I'm still actually quite lazy. But because obviously as years went on, it's just much easier to go, hey, follow the recipe and, you know, give me a taste at the end, you know. It is work to to do that. And I think the hardest thing about writing it was just the, you know, cooking all that food at home and, and the mess and, oh, and trialing things several times. How much washing up, how much shopping, how much, you know, everything. And, and also, you know, to do all the work and then have something that's not right and you have to do it again. It's yeah, because like, you can't. Really. I tend to go, oh, it's pretty right. Yeah. It's pretty right. Well, and then do I, I just mean, put I, it to bed or do I go again? And really, you got to go but, again. You got to go again to to make sure that it's solid, but but also sometimes you have your limits. Like especially if you're doing it on your own, sometimes you have to really just make mental note of like I think that needed just a little bit more salt in the end, but I'm going to go with it. I get kind of sick thing. of sorry to anybody that relies on these instructions. I get sick of saying take a heavy based nonstick pan and place onto a oh, medium heat. So and then you yeah. got to and you got to overthink a process, and I just go. Yeah, ah! you feel like in the intro, just writing, just assume. Just put a pan on. Just, just assume <laughs> that every time you pick up a pan, it's a good quality heavy base pan, yeah, and it's yeah. going to go on a medium heat, except when it goes on a high <laughs> or low heat. So last, I'm going to ask you the last question. We covered loads of stuff. Thank you so much. It's not been as a difficult year in Sydney as some of our guests that we've had from Melbourne, but it's been a difficult year. What has that meant for you? Well, if I take myself back to March when it looked like, you know, very certainly things were going to get shut down for the for the first time, I, I remember feeling just so panic stricken and afraid. And I think one of our last meal services, someone I know was dining and they said to me weeks later, you know, I'd never seen that look on your face before. I was just so afraid for obviously not just myself, but for my team. I didn't know what was coming. And also I remember feeling like COVID could be walking through the door right now and we have no idea. Like my sense of how it worked and how it spread was really, really uh, different back in that time. And um, then, you know, we got the announcement. We knew it was coming. We we closed. Um and that last day was really hard. We just gave everything a really good clean, wrapped everything up, gave away all the food to the staff that was still in the cool rooms and and everyone just kind of went home. And then, you know, we were we were all stood down from work and I I remember feeling relief mixed with that fear of what's going to happen. So, a couple weeks into that, you know, and I was basically just wallowing in that for the first couple of weeks. I wasn't really doing anything, just laying around at home. We decided at Maryville that we were going to be starting um, a home delivery of food stuff. So anyways, I kept busy doing that a couple of days a week throughout that, that whole few months process. And then the rest of the time I was cooking food at home and I was uh, getting a lot of um, you know, I had a very captive audience, so to speak, and people were really engaging with it, which I loved. And that kept me busy. So it was a, a, it was a peaceful, nice time for me. Now, then we opened, reopened back in June, and it was super busy. Um, people were, you know, almost breaking down the doors to try and get in. I was getting messages at, at all hours from people like, please get me a booking. And then when Melbourne got shut down again, and there was that revisiting of that feeling of fear, 
you know, you start to get really anxious again. And so it's just been that up and down and not knowing what's around the corner. And for right now, I think at least in Sydney, I'm super grateful that we only had to go through that once. I can't imagine what that felt like for uh, the Melbourne restaurants, uh, you know, and, and all of Victoria. And it feels like we're in a pretty good place. And I really hope it just continues to stay on this path. I think we're all incredibly fortunate to be in this country as opposed to a lot of other countries like my own, who's having a really hard yeah, time. Mine yeah, mine too. So um, I, feel, I feel a mix of gratefulness and also sadness that I haven't seen my family for a while. It's the longest I've ever gone without seeing them, and I still don't know when that's going to change. Um, but I think there's also an appreciation for the quiet time and a reconnecting to cooking at home which I'm quite grateful for because even even in writing the book, I was like doing it on my days off and really flustered and just trying to get it all done. And I had three months of essentially just learning how to love that again. And, and that was really cool. It's kind of done the same for me. I've kind of reconnected with some things that, you know, I've only ever done, you know, like making bread. I know it's a bit cliche and everybody was making sourdough, but I only ever did it at work. I never did it at home. And just, it's just nice. And I actually got really good at it again. Well, and it didn't it, yeah. And didn't it like remind you just how much like cooking can be such a joy to, to have, like, we're so lucky that we can cook whatever we want, essentially most of the time at home, take as long as we want to cook it and then eat something nutritious, nourishing, comforting. And like, who cares if you put on a few kilos? Like, honestly, I think that was probably the healthiest thing that we could have done in that time, you know, and, and again, I don't want to belittle the fact that I think it was a really, really hard time for a lot of people, especially second time around. But for myself personally, it was a really positive time to just be at home, taking care of myself, my partner and laying low. Brilliant stuff. I love it. Well, I think I'm going to have to wind it up. It's been beautiful to chat to you. I really appreciate it. I could, I've got lots of stuff that I didn't even ask. Oh. We just chatted away. So it's fantastic. And I hope that bit of recentering and that, bit of you that's fallen back in love with cooking at home uh, is a great springboard into 2021. Yeah, hope so. I mean, let's let's hope for better days 2021 for sure. All right, tips and tricks. And I'm flicking through Danielle Alvarez's book, Always Add Lemon. I'm being a bit cheeky because I'm just going to take one of her recipes because I look at it and I go, this is beautiful. So summertime, salad. Listen to this, zucchini and mint, lemon and bataga. And it's as simple as this. You take some zucchini, you slice them really thinly, and you want beautiful zucchini to start. Remember, she loves fresh ingredients. And the juice of one lemon, remember, always add lemon, a bunch of picked mint leaves, and extra virgin olive oil for drizzling. And all you do, slice them thinly, squeeze the lemon over the top, pick the mint leaves, drizzle with extra virgin olive oil, and then the kicker is bataga. If you've never used it before, you can get it from a good fish shop or a speciality store or grocer. And essentially, it's the dried row, and you're going, yuck, but hear me out. It's the dried row of fish, but it's got this umami meatiness and not fishiness that adds a beautiful flavor. And all you do is you grate a little bit of that over the top of the salad. Give it a try, courtesy of Daniel Alvarez. Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.